When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to conclude the series of We Love Rock Docs with a discussion of the classic Les Blank documentary Chulas Fronteras, a beautiful film about the Conjunto and Tejano scene on the Texas-Mexican border. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and joining me once again for the final chapter of this series of we love rock docs i've got justin bankston to discuss chulas fronteras by les blanks and chris Strockwitz from 1976 justin welcome thank you thanks i'm so excited to talk about this movie and i really appreciate you wanting to talk about it with me i'm really really grateful to you for picking this one and insisting on it because i had seen this a long time ago and it's you know been on my list, and I've I've had a whole bunch of stuff on Tahana music and and different things that, I, that I'm meaning to get to, and I haven't, and so I'm embarrassed that this is the first um, Tahana music episode we've done, and so grateful because this is such a beautiful film. It really is a special movie. I mean, and you know, not it's special to me for a variety of reasons, but it's also like clearly. Uh, a movie of importance. It's one of the, you know, relatively short list of movies. It's been, you know, it's part of the National Film Registry, so it's like a legit documented national treasure. It's it's like really just a very important little film. It absolutely is. Here's what the San Antonio Current had to say about it. It says, enhanced by a deeply saturated 16 millimeter film grain, haunting cinematography, and a startlingly startlingly beautiful soundtrack. There's a case to be made that 1976 Chulas Fronteras is one of the best music documentaries ever made, and there is not a word of hyperbole in there. Another quote I wanted to drop, this is from Hector Saldana. Um, There is a reverence. There is a sense of respect and love of the culture. They weren't filming it to put it down or ghettoize it. They were holding it up and saying, my God, this is beautiful. And that is so absolutely true. It really is. And it's one of the things that I think, you know, Les's films, this is similar to to all his other films in that it's very atmospheric and very, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you a story with, you know, a bunch of like structure. It just sort of unfolds something for you to watch and you sort of pick it up naturally. And 
but I think in this movie he manages with Chris Strawich, who I think is is a genius in his own right. Like absolutely, he has such a focus on the music and is able to just tie it all together in such a satisfying way. Yeah, and I probably mispronounced his name. Uh, I have no idea. Like we should each say it the way we think, and we're more likely to have one of us say it right. <laughs> yeah, because we got to talk about Strachwitz too. He's a German count. Um, whose family lost their castle and their holdings at the end of World War II when the Russians overran East Germany. They had to flee for their lives. He ended up growing up in California. I don't believe he was a child of a special privilege once they'd uh, lost their ancestral lands. And he just fell in love with the American roots music he was hearing on the radio. And he's the founder and mastermind of Arhuli Records, which has put out so many great Roots records. And there's a great documentary about him that you hipped me to um, called, is it This Ain't No Mouse Music? That's what it's called. And it's so great. Yeah, yeah. I recommend that to, to anyone who's had enough interest to listen to even this much of this episode. Absolutely. And there's a great quote in there from one of the Cajun musicians whose family's music had been documented by Arhuli, and that he... This was the son of, and I should have written the kid's name down, but this is the son of one of the musicians that Strachwitz had had put out multiple albums on. And he said that, you know, because of Strachwitz's love for his family's music, it had become a big part of his life. He was like, I would have discovered it on my own and everything, but seeing somebody come from the outside and appreciate this stuff so much, and somebody like Chris really made him appreciate it more. And that, that really, to me, clarified my thinking about this movie because you know we're a couple of gringos here and and in some ways we're outsiders to this culture but in other ways we grew up with this stuff i mean you know from as a texan unless you're just so insulated and god knows i've met plenty of privileged texas white assholes that that are totally insulated but if you're not if you're lucky enough to not be insulated Tahano culture is such a godsend and such a blessing to anybody from Texas. And, and you know, and that to me made me feel a little bit more comfortable about talking about this stuff as a pair of gringos that like this, there is a value in somebody from the outside of a culture holding it up and saying this has merit, just like the way Austin falls all over ourselves if some newspaper from New York or London Price as an Austin musician. I mean, you know, there's the real value in that validation coming from outside the hood, as it were. For sure. And I mean, you know, I grew up in South Texas. Like, as the crow flies, my house was five miles from the river. Uh, so this movie just looks like home to me. And and I agree, like, if you, unless you've got total blinders on, to, you know, the Tejano culture is what puts the soul in Texas. And it's such a vital and uh, beautiful part of of what I'm so proud of as as the Texas that I carry in my heart that I'm proud of. And you know, nowadays there's a lot of freight to being a Texan that uh, I really could do without. Uh, but but the positive is still so so much out in front of that, and it's because of Flacco, you know, and it's because of guys like that. Uh, that we get to hold our heads so high. Yeah, absolutely. And Willie and Lightning Hopkins and everybody else that's contributed to the music of this great state. And and um, I want to get one more quote about the movie. Um, this kind of sums it up. So 
people who are looking for what the heck is this movie about have a better idea. This is one by one. The documentary introduces the musical giants who helped define Tejano and Norteño music, along with the aforementioned Flaco Jimenez and Lydia Mendoza. Viewers encounter Narciso Martinez, Santiago Jimenez Sr. and Jr., Los Alegres de Tehran, Los Pinguinos, and that, this one I can't pronounce. You'll have to help me out with this one. Los Pinguinos del Norte. <laughs> the Penguins of the North. I love that because they, <laughs> they dress in tuxedos. <laughs> uh, Rumel Fuentes and San Antonio musical giants, Jose Morante and Salome Gutierrez. So, yeah, I mean, and if you do even just a bit of research on this stuff, this is just a this is like these are the titans of this musical genre i mean these are the bigs and it's really amazing because and especially like in 1976 so many of these people had kind of been forgotten lydia mendoza had her hits in the, in the 30s she recorded from 1927 on as a really young girl had her biggest hit in the 30s played a lot of shows in world war ii and had kind of gone into semi-retirement but because I think that this movie played a role in validating her and her artistry to her own community, by the early 80s, she was playing, you know, there was at least one show where she played to 20,000 people in California. So um, this movie, to me, really helped document this scene at a point in time when it was kind of, kind of on a low ebb and about to have a big resurgence. And I think this movie really helped with that. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there's all kinds of behind the scenes stuff going on there where, you know, we're getting to meet Flacco in this movie before, you know, anybody else knows who he is before he starts playing with Ry Cooter, which is how it starts. And then from there, all these other big time like rock and roll people who see what a legit guy he is and immediately want to like bring Flacco in to work with them on something because Rye and Chris go way back on this stuff and and chris was even they were they were talking to each other because back then it was like you would get a tape that had this accordion music on it and you'd go talk to other people and be like what is this and you know rye and chris were some of those guys having those conversations and they were figuring it out and so you get to see this movie that's being made sort of as as these these guys are sort of like discovering this music and when Rye and others are about to sort of like integrate it into a, a wider sort of popular culture. Yeah, absolutely. And Flacco, of course, went on to be one of the four Texas Tornadoes with Doug Somm and Freddie Fender and uh, Augie Myers. That is just absolutely a Texas legendary status there. But let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is from the great Narciso Martinez. This is La Chichironera from 1935. This guy was called El Hurricane del Valle. I'm going to say that. Say it for me. Narciso was El Hurricane del Valle. Yeah, perfect. Um, Or better, anyway. And the Hurricane of the Valley. And when you hear his accordion, you'll know why. Thank you. 
say the whole song title and 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 names for me again, please. So that's Narciso Martinez, El Huracan del Norte, and Excellent. the it's La Chicharronera, which is the pork rind cooker, or the one who sells it to you. Yes. Okay. The, cool. The, the young lady who sells you the pork rinds. Excellent. And and if you've ever had the chance to have these, uh, delicious. I mean, fried and and greasy and spicy and and just great stuff. And this record, like, imagine this hitting the jukebox in 1935. This is like Eddie Van Halen. Just there's no David Lee Roth. It's just I'm gonna rip, you know, just absolutely letting it go. And and Martinez, like most accordion players before this, had played the bass too, and he just dispensed with that and was like, Nah, I'm gonna play all lead all the time. I mean, just a king. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and it's it's had such a. It's had such a reach, this this music. Even, you know, us in Texas, we've been hearing it our whole lives. Uh, but even everywhere else, this this accordion sound is is familiar. Yeah, and, and the thing, you know, this was something that, that I didn't get when I was younger. Like, I, I never wondered, why are Mexicans playing accordions? It just, Mexicans played accordions. That's, you know, what I knew. And this was my first exposure to accordion music. And when I later got out into the world away from Texas and I met more people, I realized accordion music had this really negative reputation with most of the white people in America. And it baffled me. You know, I mean, I I had seen Lawrence Welk and I knew that that was part of the scene. And so it wasn't until I knew a little bit more about Texas history and realized that the accordion was brought here by these German and Czech and Polish immigrants who came to Texas in the 19th century, a lot of them fleeing political oppression, you know, after the failed revolutions of 1848 and stuff. And they brought their music with them, the polkas and the shotskas that uh, the Germans play. And at some point, the Mexicans got a hold of these things and a lot of the songs and created this music um, that's just so definitively Texan. And it's because of that blend, that cultural blend. Um, And I love, because, you know, Texan Germans like myself, we walked away from the accordion. And I, and I love that our culture has been preserved and enriched and extended and is still alive today. It's just amazing. Yeah. And the thing to keep in mind, too, is that at the same time that Germans were coming to Texas, they were coming to Mexico. Uh, Very true. And so from Mexico City up to San Antonio and up to New Braunfels, there was there was Germans coming. And the accordions landed in Mexico City, they landed in Monterey, they landed in San Antonio, uh, and and it happened. And like you said, for whatever reason, it just it resonated uh, with the people who were here, and they just took up these polkas as their own and created this new music with it that is so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And the big secret weapon they had, and this is yet more blending is the Spanish language, which, you know, a lot of these folks are mestizo for the most part. So their their ancestry was both Spanish and uh, Mexican Indians, you know, and the Spanish language, if it wasn't for Shakespeare and the Beatles, the English language would just be a 
musical disaster because it's such an ugly, awkward, clunky, you know, what rhymes with orange and stuff like that. You do not have that problem in Spanish, (laughs) Spanish and French and Portuguese. These languages are just made to be sung, you know, and 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 that's one of the neat things about Mexican music, even before they got their hands on accordions. It's a really lyrical music and and. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this one. Have you corrected the the corrido? Uh, I can't show my R's. I hope you can say that for me. The corrido, corrido. There you go. These are story songs, and it yeah. and that's one great thing about this movie is that they have the subtitles uh, for every song because that enhances it so much. And if you ever want to learn Spanish, my and which obviously I I I, I haven't. <laughs> I'm terrible, but this is how people I've known that have learned Spanish have done it. Listen to this music and learn these songs, and that really helps um, with all that. It's 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 a beautiful gift, and that's that combination is just magic. Yeah, there's this almost journalistic uh, aspect to the music. They name names and they name dates, uh, and I was you know. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but, but, you know, a prime example is when they're talking about the melon strike and, and the, the Texas Rangers coming in and, and busting it. And, you know, they, they name the governor by name and they name the date of the, of the, you know, when the Rangers came in and busted up this, this melon strike. And it's, it's like actual, it's like a newspaper article just beautifully sung about this thing that happened and also like why it was important. Yeah, absolutely. It's everything Phil Oaks ever wanted to be. I mean, it's it's musical journalism, but not in a forced or artificial or stodgy way, and also not in a way that dates itself. Um, these songs become legends, these stories that they tell. Um, and, you know, so just awesome. I wanted to get another quote. This is pretty early in the movie from a guy named Jose Morante. He says, I consider myself a Texas Mexican. We like to bring up our state. We should be, you know, thinking of ourselves as Mexican Americans, but in Spanish I say "Yo soy Tejano," and people come back at me with "Where are your boots?" and I'm like, "Not everybody wears boots in Texas," which is classic. Any Texan who's gone out of the state, um, and I love that that uh, you know our Tex-Mex friends are having the same issue in Mexico. <laughs> everybody <laughs> wants you to be the stereotype cowboy. <laughs> oh man, and then it's so he con- funny. He continues with. We have all kinds of music here in Texas, German music, the polka, which we add the conutos to. Some of the boys think we wrote those polkas, but I went to New Braunfels, which is a German town just south of Austin, and saw some of the German bands and found out they play all the same polkas we play, but we give it a little different taste. And I think that's just a, that sums it up right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, it's, it's hard to explain. You got to spend a little time with the music, but it's hard to explain how like, polka story song is going to be lyrical and soulful but it it just really is yeah yeah it it absolutely absolutely does it and i don't want to knock the german and czech polka like um you know if you ever get a chance to listen to that stuff you know adolf hoffner for one in particular uh, the 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 shiner fight song i think it's called is, is just one of my absolute favorites so not to knock that stuff there's a rich vein of polka music here in Texas, even though I, I feel like the traditions kind of died out. I'm sure, I hope there's some great polka, German polka bands still out there in Texas, but. Oh, there are. And we'll, I'll tell you what, Nate, we'll go this coming, uh, next fall, we'll go to Oktoberfest. 
there's tons of cool Oktoberfests all over Central Texas, and all the best polka bands from all over come down here and play. And so we'll we'll go hit it up. That is a plan. That is a plan. Um, and here's another thing. On the Mexican side, it's called Musica del Norteña, and it means music from the north. And that's one thing that's always disorienting to Americans is is that we're the north to Mexico, and we think of ourselves, especially in Texas, as the south. Steph's telling me I got to cue our next song, so I'll go ahead and do that and then continue what I was talking about when we get back. And this is Lydia Mendoza. And you want to say her nickname for me? Uh I'm blanking on it. Let me, I've got her. The Lark of the Frontier. Yeah, the Meadow Lark of the Frontier. Yeah. But I was, La, I was, I didn't know how to say it in, in Spanish. La Alondra de la Frontera. So, <laughs> um, and she, to me, she's like the, the Sarah Carter of, of Tejano music. I mean, she's the definitive queen of Tejano music. Started recording in, in 1927, but this song here, Mal, um, Mal Hombre, from 1934. This was her, and I think her career-wide biggest hit. So here's Lydia Mendoza, the metal arc of the frontier. And that was Lydia Mendoza doing Mal Hombre, the bad man, uh, from 1934. She she's in the movie, does that in the 70s um, live, and it's it's just beautiful. I mean, if you just Sarah Carter in front of me, Sarah Carter, the original Carter family, I will punch you in the mouth. I can't fight my way out of a paper bag, but I'll go at it. And and ditto with Lydia. I mean, this stuff. These women are queens to me. I mean, the power and the magic that she expresses with her voice just overwhelms me every time I hear it. It's, it's really something special. And yeah. this is, it's a beautiful song. And this is, you know, this is not, an, this is, timing-wise, it's right when, like, Cajunto was starting to happen, but this is more of, like, a ranchetta. Like, it's her and a guitar. It doesn't have the backbeat. But it's still, it's, it's just really lyrical and, and beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. This is, this is, kind of what the music of the frontier was like before they got a hold of the accordions and the bajo sexto which is um looks sort of like a big inflated acoustic guitar and and has six strings plays the bass tones and it's you know what you see with the mariachi band and that way they don't have to carry around an upright bass but they can still get some bass response and they're not limited like a tuba player would be to just playing two four time they can do a lot more stuff so a little bit more i want to say about Yuto music um this is a, a quote i'm reading i think i grabbed this off wikipedia on the texas side it's now basically known as tahano Yuto music well that's kind of a silly name where i say because Yuto simply means group but it doesn't include mariachis or anything it always refers to the accordion with a bajo sexo and usually two voices sometimes only one voice plus later on a string brace and then drums were added to it so um, post World War II, they added the full rock. What we think of as the R and B or rock and roll rhythm section. So, um, yeah, yeah, Cajunto yeah, is kind of where it's at. It, like it, that's definitely the core of this movie. Uh, and it's you know 
like you said, it's always the accordion, the bajo sexto, and then it started with just accordion and bajo sexto, then they added a string bass. And then in the 70s, like Flacco and, and his uh, compatriots, they were some of the first people, they added a drum kit and they switched to an electric bass. And that's like since the mid 70s, that's Kuhunto music now. And then in the 80s, there was things kind of, they started adding like synthesizers and stuff. There were these bands from the Valley, uh, Mas y La Mafia, who were, were had these all these synthesizers and big keyboards and stuff. But the core of Kuhunto is, you know, the accordion, the bajo, and the singing is obviously the most important thing. And then, you know, from the 70s on, you've got electric bass and drums. Yeah, and and, and frequently, you know, uh, four, five, six string basses and, and with a really kicking kick mullet was always the... the <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, that, that's <laughs> when you're getting into the 80s. Yeah, you got the... Yeah, you got, you got those classic, classic mullets. And I used to really not be into the synth version of that but as i've in in the let it roll process project i've kind of made my peace with synth pop and all that kind of stuff and now i appreciate it they were doing they were bringing what was what was new at the time and and keeping the music vital and, and alive uh, for the people of their time but let's get back to the movie because it's really magical like they um there's no narrator there's no voice of god telling you what's happening um it's just people playing music and then people going about their daily lives. And so they're like, they've got Narcisa Martinez and they don't tell you this is an important guy. This is musical history right here. It's just some old dude playing the accordion. And then they cut to him driving his cart around the Brownsville zoo at his day job. He's holding a baby orangutan. He's feeding elephants. And they do this all throughout the movie and they really show, you know, these are not, rock stars on some kind of pedestal you know it's not like his decadent mansion like you know i, I imagine axel rose is tonight somewhere <laughs> it, this is this is a real dude he's just a working class dude he's connected and and has a really cool job i, I was happy to see that he he looked really happy holding the baby orangutan yeah well shout out to the gladys porter zoo in brownsville texas it's one of the top zoos in the country uh i was lucky to get to go to it all the time as a kid uh, you know, if, if zoos aren't your thing, that's cool. But if it is, the Gladys Porter Zoo is uh, a great one. And seeing Narciso, and if you'll notice when they the they film him playing in the bar, he's in his uniform from work. Uh, you know, they went straight from work to the bar, and he pulled out his accordion and started playing for these guys. Yeah, which is, if you know anything about Arhuli Records, that is just Strockfitz's mo you know like when he when he was the first person to find mance lipscomb or he and uh mac mccormick i think was the blue scholar that helped him find mance lipscomb who had never recorded before he you know who's of the generation of like blind lemon jefferson and robert johnson and those cats but he never got to record in that brief window when blues artists could record they found him in the 60s and mance lipscomb became and just recorded him, like waited for him to get off work and then recorded him, boom, right there in his living room. And, and you know, the rest was history. I want to give a little more background about Martinez. They call him the father of Canuto music. Um, and he was the first guy, as far as I know, to, to combine the accordion, the bajo secto and the contrabajo, the string bass. Um, and he and Santiago Almeida recorded the first 78, which we played. Uh, for Bluebird Records, and it quickly became a success. So, um, 
you know, uh, let's see, I'll get a little more. Other accordionists in Texas had generally followed what may be called the German style, utilizing both the left and right hand buttons. He had begun to rely on his Bajo sexto player, was freed up and uh, and and just just ripped, like I said, like the total totally the Eddie Van Halen of of Canuto accordion, uh, the first one at least. Yeah, yeah, and Flacco is you know he's the man now, but like uh, he's definitely standing on the shoulders of giants, including his dad. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll get to that. And then they then they go to Lydia Mendoza, and they show her in the kitchen. And this is another thing that I think is sort of a Strockwitz touch. It could be less blank, I don't know, but Strockwitz, uh, you know, another movie about him. This guy loved to the I think the same Cajun kid that was explaining uh, his perspective and the value of that said that you know Chris is in exile and he lost his homeland and his home. And so he loves to see other people in their homes. And, you know, they, they show him with Cajun families cooking at the crawfish boil. And, of course, he finds his way to a tamale cooking. And and you get Lydia Mendoza herself just with her hands deep in that bowl of of head cheese, <laughs> you know, ripping yeah. the, the meat right off the pig's head. And they're making, uh, you know, uh, the, the tamales, which is this huge, elaborate process that requires a whole bunch of senoras and, and senoras in there. Um, it was just great. It really, it really humanizes these folks. And, you know, that's one thing about, um, different cultures and I'll come back after our sponsor break and finish that thought. And to me, the value of like showing these folks eating and with their families and at wedding receptions and, and at work, it, it really just humanizes people. And, and it, it, it feels like you're being welcomed into their home. And, and as, you know, in Texas, growing up in these with these three cultures, you know, fourth with the the remaining Native Americans we didn't slaughter or exile, um, but you know, you you go to school with black kids and Mexican kids, and I'm sure they feel the same way about white kids, but you don't really know each other until you get a chance to have a really close friend and go to their home and be involved. And it's always kind of fascinated me that like you'll hear somebody, and I'm thinking of my uh Jewish ex mother in law and she would she would you know refer to good old you know um Hanukkah dinners like just you know this is and I would always think of this stuff as like an exo- exotic other until I was there you know at the Seder and stuff and and being welcomed in and and to me that's what it's all about like there's a just this magic power to connect people and eating meals together really does that and this movie has you in there you can you can smell the spices. Yeah, and it's it's definitely I think Chris and Les are totally in cahoots on this approach. If you watch, uh, most of Les's films are going to have you in somebody's kitchen at some point uh, because that's where the living happens, you know. Uh, and his films are about just showing you what's happening, and as as much as they're about music, they're just about how that music fits in with its own place. You know what I mean? And and Absolutely. that's one of the things I love about it is you don't get somebody trying to contextualize it for you or explain to you why it's important or why you should care about it. It just shows you people playing this music and it shows you them playing it where they're from and with their people and their people enjoying it. And it's uh, it's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's a classic demonstration of show, don't tell. They don't tell you jack. 
but they show you everything. It's really and, true. Yeah, and it's it's so powerful. I want to give a little background on Liddy Mendoza. Um, her family would hitchhike around South Texas when she was a little girl, and they would perform for farm laborers. And so then they aver- answered an advertisement in a Spanish-language newspaper, and they did a recording session with OK Recordings. This is Ralph Peer and those guys going all over the country because radio was cutting the, the floor out from under the record industry in the 20s. The first wave of record production peaked in like 1920 or 21. Radio starts getting popular, and first they lose the urban, white, middle-class, upper-middle-class audience that had been their bread and butter and get lucky with Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues and suddenly realize, oh, my God, black people will buy records. And then Ralph Peer, you know, who was involved in discovering Louis Armstrong and the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers and on and on and on. He then realizes, hey, you know, uh, hillbillies will buy records, too. And I can say that because I'm Scots-Irish, so those are my people. And and. You know, and Greek people will buy records and Yiddish people will buy records. And it didn't take them long at all to get down to the valley and be like, you know what? I bet Mexican-Americans will buy records, too. Put an ad in the paper and, you know, totally rolled a 12 or whatever, won the craps on the first roll when they got Lydia Mendoza. Although it wasn't until she recorded for Bluebird, which was a subsidiary of RCA, a bigger label, that she cut uh, Mal Ombre, which was an international hit on both sides of the border. And then, like I said earlier, she and her sisters then played during World War II as Las Hermanas Mendoza, the Mendoza sisters, um, took some time off and then returned to her music career in 1947 and sold out a 2,500-seat auditorium in L.A. But like I said, you know, um, then there's some dips in her career. And by 1982, she's playing to 20,000 people. So just a great story and a lot of really solid music from Lydia Mendoza. Yeah, she's amazing. And I do love the story of Oka Records and, and what you're talking about, how all these record execs... It's okay. It's okay records. Okay. They, they figure out that these regional records can make money. And so... And, and you see it over and over again. These guys are essentially profiteers. But to do... To make their profit, they have to go document this music. And so through their, their intention to exploit, they, they essentially document all this important music and they discover people like Lydia Mendoza and they bubble up all this stuff that could have easily been lost. And what's amazing to me is to think of all the stuff that was lost. We only know about what got recorded. We don't know about the Lydia Mendozas that, never, that were singing for farm workers and never turned up for one of these recording sessions. Yeah. And so absolutely. whether it's AP Carter going out and finding songs and then claiming that he wrote them, or these guys coming through and recording these artists and then going on to just sell the records and make a buck, like that sort of drive to towards profiteering and exploitation has like actually saved so much music. It's kind of it's it's bizarre and amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a good version of the American capitalist tale, which. We're not hearing a lot of lately. <laughs> well, it's good. I mean, they definitely exploited all these people. Like, you know, oh, they yeah. certainly never made any money on any of this stuff, uh, nor did any of the, you know, hundreds of regional artists that these labels would come through and cut on and then sell the records. But but the fact that the music survives is is valuable to us. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a cultural gift. It's our cultural heritage. It's it's you know the real riches of America, and yeah, just just it is totally ironic the way the capitalists um, inadvertently became preservationists and and cultural mavens and and magnifiers. Then the movie takes this turn, and this is what you're leading to earlier, where um, they start playing these political songs, these corridors the Cordo de Cesar Chavez, who was the great uh, Mexican-American labor leader, and uh, the Rinches de Texas, which is about the Texas Rangers. And it's like, it might as well be the Pinche Texas Rangers. <laughs> it's just <laughs> double barrel, finger, middle fingers up, you know, just screw you, murderer, racist assholes, you know, and and really powerful stuff. And, and as a gringo growing up with this just hero worship of the Texas Rangers and these stories, you know, like my hometown, the vicious oil town in the panhandle, you know, we were the only town that was ever shut down by the Texas Rangers twice by riots. And one time only one ranger arrived at the train station and it was, you know, where's the other rangers? And he was like one riot, one ranger, you know? And so there was this, this incredible hero worship of these people and to hear the other side, was very telling and really changed my thinking uh, about a lot of things. Absolutely. And that was really, I, I, I couldn't agree more strongly with that. Like growing up, you just imagine the Texas Rangers as these demigods. They're these heroic, you know, cowboy lawmen, you know, from Valhalla, you know. But in reality, they were... And of course they were because they're cops, right? They yeah. they were they were fascists and racists, and you know they were the top cops in the state, and that tells you everything you need to know. But, yeah. But at the time that they recorded this song, like I don't think there was just a whole lot of people giving the the counter narrative about the Texas Rangers. Yeah, definitely not. And it's still controversial today. I mean, the people that have documented some of these massacres where the Rangers uh, turned on the Texas people who happen to be of Mexican descent and slaughtered them murderously, there's still ongoing struggles just to tell these stories and get it documented. And um, Steph's telling me it's time to cue again. So I wanted this is a song from the soundtrack. This is called Chicanos uh, by Rail Fuentes with the Penguins of the North. Say it for me again. All right. And this is Chicanos. And I, this is this is the 70s right here. This is the best of the Brown Power 70s. And that was Chicanos by Ruel Fuentes, backed by Los Pinguinos. Say it for me again. <laughs> Los Pinguinos del Norte. And it's <laughs> it's great in the in the movie. Like it's so obvious when you're watching this, especially if you watched a few of Les's films, that like he's not real shy about just doing stuff. Like he, that he's got Los Pinguinos there. He's got this guy there, and he's like, "Hey, why don't you sing a song and they'll back you up and sing that Chicano song you were telling me about?" And they just do it, and 
it, but it, but it works. It just works because, you know, everybody's having a good time. Yeah. It's, it's magical. And it's the kind of stuff that Strock Fitz did with our Huli all throughout his career. Um, just magical stuff. And I really love the way Fuentes goes back and forth between his Spanish and, you know, in my gringo ears, I can't tell what his accent is in Spanish. I, I'm guessing, I bet anything, it's, of course, the, the Max, Tex-Mex accent. But then he goes into this just hardcore Texan accent when he sings the choruses, you know. He sounds just like somebody who'd be singing backup on a Kinky Friedman or Willie Nelson record, you know, around that time. And and I, I just love that song. That, that, that was just, just magical. Um, and that was really a moment in history when, because of the heroism of the civil rights movement, you know, after the war, that spread out. It wasn't just black folks. Once, once you know, Martin Luther King and and all that made so much progress and and really shined a light. It did not take uh, Mexican Americans long at all to figure out, hey, we can do that too. People like Cesar Chavez were were ready to jump on it. And and previous to this. Mexican Americans had been extremely submissive and extremely um, afraid to speak up, and with good reason, because they had been exploited and brutalized by governments and landowners on both sides of the border. Well, that's st- not strictly true. Like there, there were the well, Zuzu riots in in oh, of I believe the forties and stuff. Like yeah, the, the Mexican Americans in California had been causing good trouble for a while. Uh, yeah, those so they, they, so they, they, they weren't stories. like completely. Uh, they weren't completely new to to standing up for themselves. No, definitely not. But as 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 you hear in the lyrics, you know, he says, you know, they call me violent because we're no longer the um, pobrecito mexicanos, you know, the poor little Mexicans, and so yeah. the um, people are are really proud to be speaking up and 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 causing some ruckus and and just not putting up with it anymore. And you know, as problematic as our lifetime has been, you know, we've learned in the past couple of years, whoa, things are not as progressed as we thought they were. Things were way worse uh, before the revolution, social revolutions of the 60s and 70s. I mean, just flagrantly brutal. And the Jim Crow regime in Texas was utterly vicious and murderous and would just flat kill you. You know, I mean, read some Jim Thompson novels and, and you know, <laughs> every sheriff's department in the state was well stocked with burly psychopaths who were ready to regulate. And I talk about this in the movie, you know, they um, have a guy in a, on my notes right in front of me here, but telling a story about, you know, trying to stop and eat a dinner in a cafe and running into this, you know, we don't serve Mexican stuff. And uh, just what an ugly an ugly thing an apartheid regime is just draws these lines between people and empowers the worst people around to exclude and pick on people over something as stupid and arbitrary as the color of your skin or where you're from. It's just sickening. And, you know, I think movies like this have helped break down a lot of that stuff. I mean, obviously the civil rights movement was the thing that broke the back of, of Jim Crow and segregation and, It's looking kind of like we might need to have some of those fights over again because those forces are certainly in the ascendant right now. It's kind of ominous. Yeah. But I I think I like also that the film uh, focuses in specifically on the migrant farm workers, uh, which, you know, I remember growing up, you know, I'd go to school in September and there would always be this group of kids that would show up 
in October or November, and they had just got back from Michigan or Indiana or wherever where their folks were were working, you know, and yep. it was just an understood thing. These these were migrant kids, right? They they went where the, with their folks where the work was, uh, you know. And this was in the in the seventies when I was in elementary school, <clears throat> and so seeing these uh, these workers talk about it in the film, uh, I think is really it's 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 telling and it's and it's lovely and it, it it sort of lends sort of background to what the music is about. Yeah, absolutely. And Fuentes has a great, you know, he, he tells that whole story. We worked beets in Montana. Then we go to Colorado and work the tomatoes, go to California, work the grapes, come back home and help my father-in-law with the spinach, then the corn, then go back to Montana and do the whole thing again. So this, you know, life of labor that feeds the whole country, you know, like I, I just do not get this hatred um, for Mexican Americans, like, do you not like to eat? Do you want to pick crops? Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, and they've been here longer than us. That's the other thing, you know. It, it's, it's, um, it's just maddening and awful. But I think the movie does a really elegant job of telling that without getting preachy. You know, it, it just, just the facts and well told, and with pretty pictures to look at, and you can see people working in the fields, and then you, you hear them singing songs, and it's. It's that's how it's done. It's magic. Then they switch over to uh, Salom Gutierrez and just ask him, how'd you get into the record business? And he's, you know, oh, just for a hobby and casually mentions he's been writing songs for 30 years, you know, and and uh, he's 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 sort of the sub pop of of Tahana Records. You know, he's like most people in the Spanish record business treat it as a hobby. You know, you get 150 bucks, you print a few records and you sell those, you print some more. But I treat it as a business. I've got two record stores. I work at the store from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Then I go to the studio and record, go home at two or three in the morning, sleep two or three hours and get up and do it all again. Then he says, this is my hobby, which is kind of ironic after dissing the hobbyist, <laughs> but but it's clearly no hobby. And then if you do some research, you know, he he, he was not just a record company. He was also the big music publisher. He had his own, the Del Bravo record shop in San Antonio and a prolific songwriter and dedicated sound engineer who uh, recorded people like Lydia Mendoza and uh, Flaco Jimenez. I believe he was the first person to record Flaco. Um, so you know, um, pretty big doings and they don't sell this at all. They just, here's this dude and, and they show him in his record shop, you know, pr pressing up records in the back and it's just awesome. It is really awesome. And yeah, it's, it's like a pretty humble, you know, he's got this record store and then, you know, they've got this shack where they're printing records and he's got this really like humble, <clears throat> excuse me, studio where you get to see Flacco bring in his band, including my man, Henry Big Red Ojeda on bass. And it's just so great. And Flacco is so great. And he's such a hero of mine. You get to see him coming into the studio where he cut his first records. They were his first records did come out on Del Bravo. Uh, and you get to see him just roll into the studio, you know, pull up in his car, come in, load the gear, you know, and start singing. And he's so young and beautiful. And it's really, it just makes my heart swell. Indeed, indeed. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think any human being should be proud that Flaco Jimenez is the same species as us. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and um, a little background on Gutierrez. He started out as a radio DJ, had a program on the radio every morning in Nuevo Laredo. Uh, 1949, his first two songs that he wrote 
um, were uh, released on the ideal labor one by Jesus Maya y Timoteo Cantu. Um, and then uh, backing musicians on this first recording included Narcisa Martinez and Santiago Almeida, who we've just been talking about. Um, so, you know, right from the get go, he's working with the best and has a hit song right out the gate as a songwriter. 64 built a small recording studio in the back of his house, begins recording local musicians on the Del Bravo label. Uh, yeah, launched the career of Flaco Jimenez, then opens the record shop in 66. Uh, and with seven years, I had three shops across San Antonio's west side. Then he closed his construction business and went into it full time. And then in the late 60s, created the San Antonio Music Publishers that became one of the biggest independent catalogs of Latin music. So Gutierrez didn't get ripped off. He was the Ralph Peer. He was the one with the publishing uh, empire. And, you know, just just a major dude. And it's just so classic in this movie. They just slip it in just like he's some random, you know, just some random guy you find anywhere. So yeah, awesome stuff. And we got to do our last cue. Uh, let's see what's our last song. This is and this is Flaco Jimenez. This is Flaco with Toby Torres doing La Nueva Zaneda. You say it better for me. You said it pretty good. La oh Nueva God. Zaneda. All right, I'll take that. From 1973, that's one of Flaco's earlier records. So that was Flaco Jimenez y Toby Torres doing La Nueva Zaneda from 1973. And he was about 10 years into his career. And like you said, um, Flaco, I wonder if, and in part due to this movie, Meeting Raikuda through um, Les Blank and Chris Stockfitz, you know, his ticket to uh, the big time and the bigger culture. And and it's, it's interesting because the population of Mexican-Americans in Texas was so much smaller in the early in the 20th century and it, and it, and it grew and grew through migration and and just natural geometric growth of the human species so that by the 80s you didn't need to escape 70s and 80s you did not need to cross over to have a really lucrative career and it wasn't really until selena god rest her soul still just such a tragedy you know she was on the verge of becoming madonna and um but she already had a really, really successful career because the audience had just gotten so big for Tejano music and Spanish language music all over the states. So, but when Flacco's doing it in the sixties and seventies, that hasn't quite happened yet. So he needed that crossover in a big way to become what he ultimately became. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a great story because he's he's kind of a singular talent. You know, he's very much from the Tahana tradition, but he's, he is just such a player and such a guy. And he understands music so well that, you know, when people like Ry Cooter came, you know, like there's early footage you can find on YouTube. Uh, that's essentially Ry Cooter just sitting in on guitar for a whole set with, of uh, Flaco Isukuhunta, right? Which is Flaco's band. And, you know, Ry's just there to, to be there. 
you know, he just wants to take this music in and learn from it and sort of put it together. He's like, rise about sort of synthesizing like American music. And so he wants to just be there and, and, and sort of soak it in. But then through him doing that, then he takes Flacco, you know, to play on his records. And then from there, Flacco plays on these other records. And now he's like, six-time Grammy award-winning, including Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award-winning Flaco Jimenez, you know, who's really done as much as anybody to to bring this music to a wider audience. Yeah, absolutely, and has really legitimized it, you know, with the hoity-toityest, snobbiest people on Earth, gone all over Europe, Japan, everywhere, and just, you know, flown the flag and and just spread this beautiful music everywhere it's just it's just awesome and yeah that, i've seen that video with Ry cooter and you got to remember Ry cooter is an arch badass this is a, you know starts out with taj mahal plays with captain beefheart the stones bring him in you know and Ry will tell you keith richard robbed him blind <laughs> like if, if you like let it bleed in beggar's banquet especially let it bleed thank Ry cooter because <laughs> keith and mick were vampiring off him pretty seriously you know and to see Ry cooter recognizing Flacco like you know talent knows talent and like knows like and and that moment of recognition is really powerful and I want to before we wrap I want to I want to talk about the Los Alegres de Tehran um, who are the last group in there and they're uh, another Norteño band from Nuevo Leon which is in northern Mexico um, and they played a lot in McAllen and uh, first record in 1948 Corrido de Pepito and uh, again, pioneers of the Norteño style, especially a duet singing, which is a big part of that. And their and their first records were sort of Falcon Records, which um, Falcon and Orfeo, some of the key Tejano labels um, uh, that that made the original stuff that that is is so important to the history. And you know, again, you get to see them playing, and then you get to see them uh, with their families. And and you know, you got the as, uh, one of their wives saying, you know, how did you meet Papa? Or that one of their daughters is asking her. And, and she just tells this great story about he was in the plaza and I came out of a neighbor's house with a bucket of water. And I see this guy playing and boom, just like that. You know, they married a few months later and it's just really sweet. And and again, just really humanizes these people. These are just folks, just just like anybody else. And they live and they love and they eat and, and they play great music. Yeah, that was a great, great moment too. And they they cut to a picture of of the young fella and he he does cut a dashing figure indeed and, and then when it's you know you'll notice again like you mentioned earlier when uh when his daughter is is talking in english she's sort of translating she's got this like amazing texas twang you know oh yeah she, you know she's texan all the way through you know bones up absolutely absolutely and and yeah it's it's and it's interesting to watch this generational integration and i can remember you know 20 years ago hearing these assholes like abby cannon and stuff saying oh mexicans are different they're not going to assimilate they're not going to assimilate and that is such horseshit it, they said it about the greeks they said it about the italians they said it about the irish they said it about the germans and it's just not true people assimilate and we have built this great culture together obviously don't always treat each other as well as we could but you know yeah it depends on what you mean by assimilate, don't it? Oh, absolutely. You don't have to give away, uh, you know, your culture. Although it, I do see that happening a lot. You know, you see people leaving the Catholic Church, which I'm certainly not going to judge that. But, you know, um, 
marrying out of their culture, marrying white people. And, and, and the, the bleaching process starts, which is kind of a vicious thing. And, and, you know, white is a whole lie anyway. It was a way to erase the cultures of all these people that came to America and draw this white black line, you know, well, at least you're not black and, and con everybody into giving up their culture and their, and their, um, what was special about them, you know? And, and, so yeah, you're right. It is a, a, a two-edged sword. That's that's you know, there's good and bad, and you know, then there's a lot of Mexicans wearing MAGA caps. And <laughs> well, but you know, the two most powerful forces that keep culture alive are music and food, and you get you get both uh, in this film. Yes, you absolutely do. Yeah, the the movie is. Um, Chulas Fronteras, Beautiful Borders by Les Blanks and Chris Strockwitz from 1976. Just an absolute magical film. Tells the story of a really undersung major American music. And Justin, it's just been a delight doing this uh, series with you and hope to have you back when you're not so busy with your day job like you're going to be for the next few months. <laughs> Ooh, it's going to be fun. Thank <laughs> you so much. It's been, it's been a huge pleasure, Nate. Thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure's all ours, and hopefully for the listeners as well. So. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will kick off the 13th season of Let It Roll with a discussion of the musical and cultural history of New Orleans with Ned Sublet. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.